The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every week, Wednesdays 10 to 11 Eastern Time. Uh, we are live, and then at the end of the day, we archive the show. Today, I have two guests uh, coming up in this hour. My first guest is Caroline Floor. She's author of Heaven's Child. And... Um, Caroline was educated as an engineer, but was always drawn to writing. Uh, Caroline is, uh, in her book, Heaven's Child, she talks about one of, or the most traumatic time of her life, the death of her 16-year-old twin daughter, Sarah. Um, this obviously shocking, horrific accident that happened to her daughter, uh, she talks about in the book and describes the long emotional impact on her family, uh, on herself, on her children, on her husband. Uh, so we're going to be talking about her book today. Uh, the second guest is uh, a psychiatrist, David Reese, uh, MD, um, and he is uh, an internationally recognized expert in character and personality dynamics. So uh, we're going to be talking to Dr. Reese about uh, well, the uh, past election and how people, the undecideds, vote uh, apparently, and not uh, they don't cast their votes based on facts, but on irrational emotional factors. Um, but first, my first guest is uh, author Caroline Floor. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you, Catherine. I appreciate it. it. You know, it's such a painful topic, and I'm sure I'm not the first one to have said that. I, I know you do a lot of writing, and you've had a lot of interviews. But uh, you know, what happened to you is like obviously a uh, you know, I have three children, and uh, a parent's uh, worst nightmare, and, and so difficult to even talk about. So, um, I, you know, I commend you for writing the book because I'm sure it's it's inspirational to to many people. But um, so let's start with, I mean, the end of the, you know the book is that you have reached a point where you find a deeper meaning in life. You can celebrate life again. You're ready for everything, and you appreciate what you had. But how did you get to that point? And so let's let's talk about that first. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, finding peace after extraordinary loss is um, just it, that's part of this story. Um, other people have taken a different take with it, as it being the cautionary tale, um, a, a, a tale of vigilance and living in the moment and being constantly aware that each day would be could be our last. Um, I've had kids reading it, parents of teenagers reading it, uh, young adults reading it, realizing that really um, all we have is time. And but what when I wrote the story, I wrote the story for my four children who live. I have five children, 
and I wanted them to understand and know um, what we went through on this epic period of trauma and growth, coming from me as their mother in hopes that we could connect on a completely different level than before. Um, and so the book I wrote is very raw, it's very intimate, because it really is a documentation for my kids. And when you read it, you will, um, as a reader, take this journey along with me. And I am so happy. It's brought great joy to share it with others because the response has been overwhelming. Um, It's encouraged others to share their story, and it's encouraged others to know that the pain on their journeys, that in time, taking those tiny steps, they will be okay and they will survive, and they will do have that resilience to overcome tragedy in their life, any, any kind of tragedy. Um, it's, you know, divorce, financial ruin, anything that it might be. It doesn't have to be the loss of a child. That's just one, one what I'm speaking of in this. Yeah, and I think um, I, I had a friend who was a, an oncologist who always said life is, this, and I've mentioned this on the show before, that life is a series of losses from the beginning of losing. When, we, when we're born, we lose the comfort of being in our mother's womb, and it goes on from there. It does. Uh, it yeah. does go on. And, you know, the, what I've over, it took, it took even five years before I realized that we would survive as a family, and it was at that point that I started writing um, documenting the story for my kids. And looking, what I had done is I had, I had written down during this time, not intending to ever write a book, I documented everything from the very first day that those knocks came at the door, and I threw these jotted notes into a drawer. And when I... What made you do that, though? I mean, at the time, should we go back to the time of the accident sure we yeah. let's start at the, let's start at the beginning yeah it was you know it's 5:30 in the morning um sarah had spent the night at a friend's house you thought or i thought she was in bed sound asleep her twin sister had spoken to her at 11:30 that night everything was as it should be and before you know it um at 5:30 in the morning i have a knock on the door and I wasn't given any details. I was told two firemen came in and said that Sarah had been killed in a car accident and the coroner would be calling me. Um, and that's exact. It was very few sentences. That's exactly what happened. It was as simple as that. And from that point, um, I had a tremendous clarity wash over me that I needed to be present for every moment of what was going to happen. And the, I wanted to give, from there, the coroner did call at 10.30 in the morning. You were, I was never asked to go down and ID her body. It was determined it was Sarah because people, volunteer firefighters at the accident knew her. We live on a very small island. One of those firefighters was um, the stepfather of a friend that's a good friend of Sarah's. And he took very good care of her body. Um, he took care of her just as if he were Sarah were his own child and then they ID'd her at the coroner's office by a tattoo of a dancing leprechaun that she had tattooed on her hip unbeknownst to me um, at the time um, because she wanted to go to to Notre Dame and it turns out that there were eight kids in the car that night a 14 year old 
two 14-year-olds driving the car, and they simply went for a midnight joyride at 1 o'clock in the morning out for snacks at the local Safeway and then took this ride, and Sarah was, one child was killed, and that was Sarah. And from the beginning then, when I started jotting down all these things, it was a way of taking what was in my head and trying to make sense of things. Um, my attention turned completely to my children who lived. It was a natural instinct, and I knew immediately that I didn't want my family to fall apart from this. I had already been divorced with these three children from a first marriage and two from a second. And Sarah and Katie were 16 at the time, and my youngest was six months old. Um, and that, over as I started to write all these things down, I had no idea all the patterns and the coincidences and different magical processes that were happening. happening. When five years came and every year we celebrated Sarah's death up at the cemetery, um, we are Catholic. Sarah's buried at a Catholic cemetery, but it, a Jewish friend clued us in on the one-year process in, your, in the Jewish faith. And I've taken that and went with it. And we had a big party, big celebration at one year, and every year since, at the cemetery, we have a picnic to celebrate not only another year together as a family, but also to honor Sarah's life. And that's been a very healing um, anniversary each year. And at five years, I realized our family would stay intact. I pulled out, went home, pulled out all these jotted notes, and started to see patterns. How did you find the strength, though? I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and what you did, and immediately, you know, when Sarah was killed, I mean, you thought of your kids, and you had to take care of them and every, you know, emotionally. And, and, and I'm just thinking of her twin, Katie. How did, I mean, it would seem to me it would, for her, also, I mean, it's devastating for everybody. And then she had, I would imagine, her own, obviously, her real special relationship with her sister. Um, she did. The twin... Um, I, I, I didn't, when you raise twins, you, I raised them to, um, always be together. And the mis, to, they were in the same class. They had the same teachers. They didn't wear the same clothes or anything. But what happened was one became the leader and the other became the follower. And when Sarah was killed, Katie had to basically go back to the social steps and learning as a kindergartner. And she, she literally slept for about a year and a half after the accident. She was able to finish school, high school at home, taking, um, you know, through a, a different school. And she did graduate, and she did go on to college two years later. And it was at that point that her life has really begun again, because then she could go to college, and people didn't know her past, didn't know her as a twin, and she could begin with her own identity. How do you as a parent, Caroline, be, are, are you able to, to let go? I know, uh, you know, people who are, going, or who are going through similar or the same kinds of things, I think. And as a social worker, you know, I've, I've been and counseled families uh, who have lost children. And it's kind of like one of the things always seems, one of the issues always seems to be that you are so frightened or, or and maybe particularly mothers, that something is going to happen to your other children and it's really hard to let them go through the normal um, 
breaking away that they do? I mean, you know, I still, I don't sleep at nighttime. I am ever vigilant at nighttime for the phone to ring or a knock on the door again. Um, I haven't had a night's sleep since this happened. And it is, you do live with that. I have, I haven't overcome that point. Um, I've, I've even been to the sleep (laughs) clinic and nothing is helping. Um, sleeping pills, nothing helps with that. And so I've just incorporated that into my life. Um, but you you ask about what I've learned is that really in all of this that that my faith that faith in something matters and that I have come to to know through the patterns and coincidences of all of these jotted notes that I've seen that I have to believe in a life after this because in believing in that and in having a faith that gears me in that direction that ultimately that brings meaning to my life now and makes my life so much more so much more blessed so much greater in existence that goes beyond myself um, but to get to get back to the comment you asked about mothers and how they they deal with this about 3 3 years into the process of trying to of, of focusing on my children who live um, I read in a magazine an article, simple article. People always ask you, "Are you okay?" And we always respond, "Yes, you know, yeah, we're okay." When in fact, you're not okay, and it's just that standard statement that you make. And somebody says, "Well, you'll never get to hold your, you know, never get to watch your child grow up. You'll never see their twenty-first birthday. You know, Is this you'll what never people watch say them to you? Oh, yes." Yeah, people have asked that, and it's been the response. And, you know, I've really come to know that I, I don't think in those terms at all with Sarah, um, because the answer is, is that I, I don't know. You know, I don't know what her life should have been. And I realize um, only today that her soul had its own journey and its own term with life and that it had nothing to do with me. Um, but that I got to participate for a while in the journey of her soul. And for that, for those 16 years, I am unspeakably grateful. And that unto itself means that living right now in the moment, as I can celebrate her death, I can celebrate life much greater right now in this moment, because I don't know if I'll have another day. I think that's really well said. I, I'm just uh, kind of reeling from what you said, that people would be, there's such an insensitivity for people to ask you that question, it just seems to me. But, um, you know, you talk about, and this is what you are talking about now, but the question, your life is, you change. And I, yeah. I guess, and that's what, you know, it comes from your book and just what you're saying right now, but you do change. It, you it changes change. you, it changes your family, and how you change, I guess, is the real thing. Do, as you say, do you grow or do you become diminished? And it sounds like that you've grown and your family's grown, but it's that not is easily. Knowing, that's knowing that, it, coming to know that we all have a resilience and an inner strength inside of us, and when we access that, that's so much greater than tragedy, any tragedy. We can, and once you get through one thing and you know that strength is there, you can get through just about anything, work your way through, because we have this one life to live that's been given to us, and it's our life. Um, how you, you ask, how do you find peace 
after extraordinary loss like this. And I did jot down several, um, several things that really worked for our family and for myself. Um, would you like me to share those with you? Yeah, okay. I would, yes. Um, you know, the, the very first thing from that beginning moment was it was to listen to my heart. I knew that in myself. I started to trust my intuition and my gut. And I started to listen to my heart, and I had to trust in my own journey. I started to pay attention to everything around me, um, acknowledging what was present and trying to embrace it all, things even as simple as washing the dishes at the kitchen sink. Um, I started to realize, and my children have started to realize, too, that we all had to make choices consciously and wisely, um, because truly um, our choices can go all over the board and they affect not just ourselves, but they affect everybody in our lives and those strangers and the communities and the people around us. And can so you our, take each one? I mean, like as you're describing that, you're washing the dishes, you're aware of washing the dishes, and you're aware of everything that you do or of the opportunities that you have every from moment to moment, I guess, just in terms of living each day and being aware of, all we have is time. I, that, I think that's an important comment. But each one of you has, I, I just did like, if each one of you, you're the mother and then siblings and, and uh, Sarah's twin and then you know, on down to the baby, must, I'm making a, an assumption, adjusted differently. Your timing is different because everybody's different and everybody had a different relationship with Sarah and they were different Everybody ages. grieves differently. Everybody's yeah. process is dif- different. Grief and death is very personal. And each each of them came to, has come to terms and is still coming to terms um, in what works for them. Christopher was, the, our middle, our son, middle son, was 10, almost 11 at the time of the accident and when he had his, past his 16th birthday, going on his 17th birthday, and he realized he was um, going to be older than his sister ever would be here on this earth, that, you know, you fall back and, and you go back to a different level than with him. I mean, I never would have, th- I didn't realize that. I wasn't prepared for that, um, that his realization that he was now older than his sister would ever be. And he had difficulties at that time. And I wasn't prepared for that. But now I understand it. Did you ever go into counseling or, or therapy? or, or We know, did. Yeah. We, we had some counseling. Um, when we entered in, we went to about three or four sessions a couple of months, a month, a couple of months after the accident happened. But we weren't ready. And certainly as a family, we weren't ready. Everything was so overwhelming because there were eight kids involved in this accident, and it was a huge tragedy, uh, probably one of the largest tragedies our island has ever seen. They've never seen anything since um, that magnitude, since that time in 2004. Um, but we did seek out some, tra- some therapy then. Um, it, it wasn't helpful after several years, I found several. I found a therapist in Seattle that was very helpful for me for confirming the celebration of death and the importance of that in my life, which I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, because if I can celebrate death, then I can know a life much greater here, um, a beauty here than ever before, and that was most helpful to me. Um, Katie, 
of course, we went to therapy together a couple years after the fact um, so that she could get a sense about her and start again. But most helpful, I have to tell you, was a free hospice class on grieving at our local county health clinic, 10 sessions, and it was amazing. You're sitting there, and you're listening to a gentleman, 85 years old, whose wife of 60 years has died, and, um, and you realize you're not alone in your pain and your grief then. And that was the most remarkable experience was the, the grieving, the hospice class we went to on grieving. Yeah, I think it's always, at least for me, in, in any time that I've had any kind of a traumatic experience, being able to share that with other people who have had similar experiences always is that is so true. Helpful. Yeah, it, that is so true. And you know, but for most people, they don't talk about what's happened. They don't share of themselves, and they don't connect with others. And you live with that pain inside. Well, and, don't you find that people are? I mean, Caroline, people are always even. When someone's 85 years old and an 85-year-old spouse has died, we, as a culture, have difficulty talking about death in general. And then, we do. Yeah, it's, we do. You know, and if, and I and that's and in sharing that this this story, having this child, the response has been overwhelming. People coming back with emails. And they're talking about what's happening in, in their lives and all respond and they'll come back and say, thank you, thank you, how healing it has been just to talk about it. And I am hoping, I'm hoping that in sharing this story that it will encourage others to share of themselves with others because the more we can connect, our lives are just, they just grow from that point. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, to me, it seems without a doubt by sharing this story, you're going to help people. You know, I was just thinking of, of military families where they lose a spouse or a son or a daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that your book in particular would be helpful to you know that population. I, I don't I don't know if you've had any response from them or not. I, I just had a response yesterday from a woman who had whose twenty year old son who was a twin was um, in was over in um, the Middle East and was killed and. I sent her back an email, and the email I got in response was just so appreciative and so gra- so grateful. And that it, she started talking about how she felt and the pain that she has. And it, yeah, it's it. As soon as we start talking about things, about anything, divorce, you know, whatever it is in our lives, we heal. Uh, you know, I was thinking about, uh, you know, when I got, I, mean, I was divorced 25 years ago, and part of that, that's obvious, and was had been married for 20 years, and obviously that's a loss, and, and with three kids. Huge and, loss. And, yeah, and mm-hmm. thinking about how uh, there's a period of feeling angry, like, why do I have to go through this, or why am I going through this? And I was thinking about you. Um, did, did you ever... You, you know, yeah. I, 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 I was never angry. Um I, my attention didn't turn to anger and bitterness. I can't say that for other members in our family because we went through the whole trial thing and the the girl that was driving the car was convicted of vehicular homicide at the age of 14 and forever she will have to check that box on all of the applications that you've been convicted of a felony mm-hmm. did for she the go rest to jail? of her life. She did, she yeah. did. 
the girl that took the car out of her family garage was also 14. And um, I think the only anger I had in all of this was the fact that that, that girl was convicted of um, grand theft auto because she had taken the family car out of the garage unbeknownst to her parents, and she wasn't licensed, and they were the victims in this crime. Um, she was not... Uh, the only anger I had was that she was not um, uh, attached to the death of Sarah um, in, at the trial. And the prosecutor explained that to us, and I still don't understand that, that she wasn't um, convicted as, like, an assisting um, in the thing. But otherwise, my anger and bitterness was not there, and I, that does it shows through in the book. There isn't any anger or bitterness in the story. Um, but that's not to say that that wasn't in the family, because you do go through that period. I really... I focused on keeping my family together and focused on the health of my children and making sure that my marriage would sustain all of this and that these kids would be okay. We haven't talked about that, but your marriage, because I think obviously, I mean, there's you as an individual, there are the kids, and then there's your marriage. And how did you sustain your marriage? Because I think many couples get, I don't know what the statistics are, but many couples get divorced at the death of a child and they Others do. It's a very yeah. yeah. It's a very high statistic. I was aware of that at the time. Um, I had I, I had watched another friend whose brother had been killed in a rodeo accident when he was 22. We were 21, and I watched their family completely fall apart, and then the mother die of stomach cancer four years after the death of her child. And so with that really in the forefront of my head, that wasn't going to happen to my family. Um, But it wasn't until about three years after Sarah's death that my husband opened up, that I opened up, and and at that point I realized, because I was changing, this experience had changed me tremendously. It had changed everybody in different directions. And But at three years when, when I realized that we could start communicating again and had uh, start communicating on a much deeper level than ever before. That was when I knew that our marriage could survive all of this and that I needed to start putting that attention into my marriage, too. Well, you sound like a very wise woman. I mean, you, I mean, what comes through is that, you know, you, everything doesn't you don't heal at once everybody heals differently you give yourself time the first you know you have to take care of yourself you take your concern with your children and then yes you know maybe it was two years later or three years later your marriage became more paramount kind of like after the it comes a different yeah it stages every when you go through different losses in your life um, it's really taking small steps at a time and eliminating all of the expectations that you might have and blocking out those expectations that other people have for you. Because if you take those tiny steps you and find that inner strength and focus and pay attention, you will find your way through. And this the experience changes you, but it can change you for uh, so much more beauty in your life. I think you, we only have a couple minutes left, but you did just say something that I think it's important. You have to go on your own time and your own family's time because other people have their own time, you know, that they think 
you have six months, you have a year. You don't. You, you should have be over it. it, and now we can get we can get back to normal, or our relationship to get back to normal, and you can't go on other people's timeline, which seems obvious, but I think that this is always an issue that you have to wrestle with. There, There isn't any timeline. When we yeah. sat in that grief, the hospice class, there was a woman that 14 years before her mother had died, and she still wasn't over it. Yeah. It, everything takes time. It takes tiny steps, and you really have to eliminate any expectations so that you can allow yourself just to expand in that present. Well, I think you've really, I mean, just in, as you, in writing this book, um, I'm sure you've touched so many lives, and you'll continue to do so. And I, I think it's, you know, it's such a positive thing that that you've done for families. Um, I, so I do want to mention the book again, but also the website, because you have a website, heavenschild.com. Yes, it's the same name, title of the book. Um, you can go online and find out more information about me or the book, or go to amazon.com. Um, it's available there and in the Kindle format. Um, well, Caroline, thank thanks you. so much for being. Yes, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story. And uh, it's Caroline Floor, and her book is Heaven's Child. And you can go to her website, heavenschild.com. Um, thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Have We're gonna, a good day. You too. We're going to um, talk to our next guest after the break, psychiatrist David Reese, and he is uh, his company is DMR Dynamics. Uh, he's a psychiatrist who has been a practicing psychiatrist for 25 years and he's an ex he's uh, recognized internationally for his expertise in character and personality dynamics so don't go away i'm Catherine zox your social worker with the microphone you're listening to voice america variety.com and world talk radio we'll be back in a minute be sure to friend us on facebook you can do it right now Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and we archive the show at the end of the day. My next guest is Dr. David Reese. He's a psychiatrist. He's been a practicing psychiatrist for 25 years and is recognized internationally for his expertise in character and personality dynamics. And his company, I guess, is DMR, DMR Dynamics. 
Dr. Reese and I are going to, well, we were supposed to talk about, and I want to talk about that as well, how the undecideds made their choices in the presidential election. Uh, but since he is an expert also and is an expert in character and personality dynamics, I think we can also get into talking about uh, the big sex scandal that's uh, going on right now. And I guess something new happens as we speak. Welcome to the show. Nice to have Thank you on, you. Dr. Thank you. My pleasure. Reese. Yes. Okay, so shall we start with the... What do you want to start with? I am just, uh, uh, I mean, you've had so much experience in terms of how people make decisions and why they make decisions uh, based right. on their character and personality dynamics. So um, do we want to talk about the election or do we want to talk about uh, um, the, the love? It's more than a triangle. Lots of people involved. <laughs> right. I, yeah. I mean, we can start with that since that's most pertinent and actually the, the issues sort of flow together in yeah, some ways. Yeah, they do. You know, um, you know, obviously, you know, I haven't evaluated any of the people involved, yeah. and we really don't have any information about the personal lives or marital relationships, or even if this is the first time for any of these people right. being involved. Maybe we should uh, start with your premise, though, like just the overall, you're an expert in character and personality dynamics, and you right. say... Okay, and how does that affect the choices or the decisions that we make, whether it's who we vote for or who we have sex with or whatever we do? Right. Well, the, the way I look at it is obviously we all start out as children, and we all start out making decisions more based on emotion than on fact. And then as we mature, we learn how to really modify our decisions and temper our decisions that are based on emotion with facts and reality and understanding consequences and looking to the future. Now, some people don't get very far in integrating that and learning how to be more mature. Other people do very well with it but are capable of regressing under certain types of stresses or situations. All right, give us examples. I like antidotes. I like, like you know, give us a case example of what you're sure. talking about. Sure. You know, the one of the examples that I use a lot of times with patients who are on the more regressed end you know, they'll be telling me stories such as, well, you know, I'm short of money this, rent, this month. You know, I really wanted to pay rent. Uh, I wasn't able to. And my landlord was really upset about it. And they really can't understand that the landlord was upset even though they intended to pay the rent. As if the, the feeling, the emotion that I want to should be enough without realizing that there's a practical consequence, there are practical issues that need to be dealt with, and that other people are going to react to those practical circumstances rather than just how you feel. So that's an you know, immaturity in terms of your, your uh, character development or personality, right? Sure, development. and yeah. a lot of times that goes back to early life experiences, some of which is just normal because we start out without being able to think in words, but the more difficult a childhood is, you know, if there's actual abuse, you know, if, if you look at an abusive parent, they're generally not abusive, and, I, and it doesn't have to be severe abuse, it could be just minor issues, but the reactions aren't really based on what the child does as much as how the child feels, how the parent feels, and children who are more sensitive will pick up that what determines whether I'm safe, whether my environment is comfortable, is more my parent or caretaker's feeling state than what's actual go actually going on. And the more that that is reinforced, the more difficult it is later in life to make decisions based on facts as opposed to your emotions and other people's emotions. 
So whoever your parents or caretakers are or guardians or whoever they are, the more mature they are in terms of how they their decision-making will help you uh, to be more mature in your decision-making, right? So parenting skills are really important, right? Right. Parenting skills are important. And also sometimes there are issues that go beyond parenting skills, such as if a parent is absent through no fault of their own or physically sick. So there may be issues that have nothing to do with the parent's intent or skills, but for the most part, yes, parenting skills are paramount. So we're talking about the maturity of decision-making, or that's, is that... And, Correct. And how, yeah. Correct. Okay. Yes. So, how can we become mature decision makers? Uh, let's relate it to the to the election. We'll go back to that because you say the undecided are people who don't make a, their decisions till the last minute, but they're the ones the whole let's say in our political system, the presidential uh, you know who we have as our president is based on their decision, and it's not based on fact; it's just based on emotion at the time. Is that what, is that the premise? Or based too much on emotion. And, of course, because it just so happens that our system is pretty split 50-50, it's those undecideds who become the deciders. Uh, you know, if the political opinion was split more 70-30, they wouldn't have as much power. But as it is, they do. And, you know, there's been fun being made of undecideds that these people are uninformed or don't care, and, and there's some percentage of that. But there are a lot of very sincere and informed people who will still be swayed, even at the last minute, by their gut feeling or by their emotions without necessarily really evaluating those gut feelings and integrating them with information and data and logical process. So what's the difference, Dr. Reese, between them and the, as you say, the country is divided kind of 50-50 in terms of who, the, you know, whether they're going to vote for, well, in this case, Obama or Mitt Romney. Sure. Are their decisions really necessarily based on facts, objective facts, or are they too, you know, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, so I'm going to vote, you know, regardless of all these ads and, and, and you know, trying to convince me to vote one way or the other, right. it's not going to make any difference. I'm just right. going to, yeah. Sure. The, the maturity of the decision-making process doesn't guarantee whether the decision is going to be right or wrong or whether it's a good decision or not. Uh, what I'm basically looking at is that the majority of the population, whether for good reason or maybe not good reason, have made their decision long before the election. Uh, but it's the undecideds who are still in, in the words that are used, in play, and therefore they're the ones that the advertising and the spin is aimed at because those are the ones who may still make a difference. Whether other people have made their decisions on a good basis or not, they're counted on being sort of fixed. You know, their votes are going to go one way or the other, and you're not going to do much to change that. So all the the last couple of weeks, the last months, uh, the campaigns are basically looking at, one, getting out the vote, which also has to do with motivation, emotion, maturity, and, two, getting to those voters who are still basically vulnerable to changing their ideas, probably more based on emotion than any new facts, unless there's a huge October surprise. Yeah, right. Can, is there anything, is there a profile for these people? I mean, are, do, you, do you have any kind of a profile for the ones who do remain undecided? I mean, are certain demographics, certain age, uh, intellect, education, does, it, does that have anything to do with whether they're going to be undecided or not? Uh, I think uh, education and sophistication uh, contributes to those who are undecided more because they're just uninformed. 
Uh, but in terms of on an emotional level, it really runs the whole spectrum. There may be some extremely bright, uh, very well-informed people who still tend to react emotionally. Give us uh, an example. Let's take a very extremely <clears throat> bright Ph.D., has understands the information he's getting has some, or she has some understanding of the economy and the objective facts that these guys are running on in this case they are guys um, right yeah so, and, and understands they, that neither candidate may be perfect uh, but then is going to be swayed by their gut feeling in the last few weeks of who they feel will do best or who they like better uh, more likely just who they feel will do best but not necessarily coordinating that with all of the data. So who they feel, somebody who reminds them of their brother-in-law, who they think is a good, or, or, some, you know, or somebody who they don't like, so there's just a gut reaction to this person? Or exactly. Yeah. Yes, it may be positive or negative, who I like better, or if they're suddenly turned off of, well, this person said this sound bite, which gets me angry, you know, and that may, it may be very reasonable to take that into consideration, or it may be taken out of context if it's looked at only from an emotional point of view. So what does this say about our system? Is this a good thing or a bad thing, or should we be concerned? Or Well, I think there's reason for concern, um, and in a way it's not a good thing, but it's not really an avoidable thing because that's the nature of our system. Uh, where there could be an improvement is in the campaigns becoming more mature on all sides of the spectrum and not playing into the spin on an emotional basis. But as long as that has power, I'm not going to hold my breath till that happens. But, Dr. Reese, uh, what about the billions of dollars that are spent on both sides? Like, I understand it's billions uh, for these ads, for instance. Isn't that a waste of time and money, given what you just told, you know, your thesis? Uh, to do that? Should, that to money some, be, yeah. Sure, sorry. No, I was just going to say it could be... I mean, you could use that for the deficit or something, but it just seems to me spending, I mean, the media makes a lot of money, but other than that, isn't it a waste of, as I say, time and money? I mean, my personal opinion is that yeah. money could be much better spent. Yeah. Uh, of course, you can't argue that attack ads, positive or negative, can be effective, so you can argue that it's well spent if you think it's worth putting that type of money into winning the election. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, what at times both sides ignore is the blowback, that while you're doing something to emotionally fire up those certain people to come to your side, it may fire up some people to go the other way. Yeah. And uh, that's not always uh, taken into account and not equally as accurately taken into account by either side in any given election. Uh, it's it, very interesting. Now let's talk about that in terms of, of uh, what's happening right now with uh, General Petraeus and General John Allen and right. Joe Kelly and the FBI agent and uh, Paula Broadwell. Right. Uh, yeah, okay. They, they, let's talk about their characters and personality dynamics and the decisions and the choices that they've made. Um, give us your overview. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, obviously you don't need to be a shrink to say that a uh, number of people have made some really bad decisions. Yes, okay. Uh, and, you know, the, the question there without knowing any of these people personally is, is this a matter of their basic character? Have they done this in the past? Is this a pattern? Or is this really a regression 
uh, that's occurring because of personal problems, because of other stresses? Is it something that's really unusual where their normal way of function for some reason has fallen apart? Uh, I don't think we really have the data on that, but what we can say is that they're certainly functioning, to put it in simple, non-technical language, on a high school level, uh, which we don't like to see the leaders of our military or country, you know, uh, functioning like high schoolers. Yeah, and there are, I think, uh, well, for each one of these characters in this whole scenario, um, they all come from different places, as you say. I mean, we have two generals who are in <clears throat> very high positions, and then you have kind of the, uh, not lesser characters, but, you know, they come from a different place, and, and our expectations for them may be different. Can we take, so can we take each one, why David, uh, 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 General, well, we'll take the two generals yeah. first, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, in some ways that's extremely problematic, because for them to have risen to this level, uh, you would expect that they had a certain degree of maturity and at least the ability to protect themselves. Now, of course, that's not always true because there are some people who are so good at being deceptive or manipulative that they get away with it for long periods of time without getting caught, uh, and they may eventually get caught or even get away with it. I mean, we've had the other example, and again, I'm just going on what's in the media, but supposedly Lance Armstrong, who you know everyone saw in one way and was... Evidently, what's coming out now, extremely good at getting away with it until finally push came to shove. So we really don't know enough history to know if these are people who, to use a more technical term, were really quite narcissistic throughout their career but used it adaptively, but now it's come home to roost, or if this is really a regression for some personal or professional reason. Well, in the case, and that's a... That's a great analysis. I think I, um, you know, this whole concept of the narcissist. Um, but for instance, let's say uh, General Petraeus. I mean, he's at an age, what you know, where uh, maybe a, there is an element of, I guess, perhaps. I, th- I think it was Maureen Dowd this morning uh, men- uh, mentioned in her her column that uh, you know General Petraeus came to some kind of a party, not in his uniform, but just in a regular suit. But he had all his medals on his thing. You know that he, you know, this is this, right. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit as she was saying. This is all right, and, and we really don't know. Is has this been his personality all the way through? But his skills maybe made up for it, or he was charming enough to get away with it, or is this some type of, to use plain language, midlife crisis? Or we, we have, really have no idea what's going on in his marriage. Um, and not to say that that would excuse anything, but it may provide more insight. Um, so that there's a big question. Obviously, it's an immature behavior, but is it a pattern uh, or is it a falling backwards is unclear. But would you say, Doctor, let's, I mean, sometimes as human beings, and we're all vulnerable, uh, we put ourselves, we're in certain, you put yourself or you're in a certain situation that, you, it, the situation itself is going to, just because of the nature of being human, uh, cause us to behave in certain ways. I mean, if you have, yeah. you know, if you are in Afghanistan for six months with another woman who is beautiful and smart and embedded with you, uh, you know, maybe nine out of ten, 
uh, men would end up sleeping with her uh, because that's the nature of the situation that you've put yourself in. You, you know yes. what I'm saying? You haven't been absolutely. with your wife. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Because when we talk about stresses, you know, there are some stresses which may be stresses which we expect we should be able to handle, but then there are some stresses that are so overwhelming that it's hard to expect any even healthy person to react with total maturity. Uh, or to be able to put it all aside. And don't so, well, and don't men in power always? I mean, isn't that? I mean, any man in power? I mean, Dwight D. Eisenhower and John Kennedy and Bill Clinton and Jefferson and Washington and and all of these guys <laughs> behaved, you know, in terms of. I mean, they were leaders and they were able to do what they had to do, but they also had affairs. So how does that fit into the picture? Well, I think you can make an argument that you know, of course, it doesn't refer to everybody, but to a large extent, it takes a certain degree of really pomposity or grandiosity to feel that you're capable of accepting that much responsibility and power. In a sense, you have to be a bit narcissistic to even want to be in such a position. Now, and, and in some ways that's positive because we don't want leaders who are always self-doubting you know, or don't have confidence, but there's a dark side to that where confidence can lead to overconfidence, can lead to a sense of invulnerability, and then behaviors, just feeling I can get away with it, I won't get caught, or for me this is okay. Um, I think that's part of it. For me this is okay. I'm special. You know, I'm special. I'm different. I'm, you know, head of NATO. I am the head of the CIA or whatever. I'm president, um, and I'm different. Right. it, It leads to a grandiosity, and that's often reinforced by the people who are around these high-level persons who, for their own reasons, want to pump them up and keep them basically grandiose. I mean, you look back, I mean, this goes back a number of years to the the Gary Hart situation where he was having an affair and he told reporters, follow me, you know, I'm innocent, follow me, Um, which, which indicates a level of denial and poor judgment that seems totally illogical. Why would you tell people to follow you if you know you're you know, doing something you shouldn't? But there can be that level of dissociation and denial that these people really feel they're above being caught, even in ways that would seem obvious. Yeah, and the grandiosity takes over. Let's take – all right, let's, I want to do one of the other players in this. Jill Kelly, what is your read on her? Where is, where is she coming from? You know, I really don't have enough sense to to know. Um, you know, something's going on there. Obviously, anybody who gets involved in something like this now, whether it's an attraction to power, uh, whether it's a sense that by connecting to someone in power, that that will sort of transfer some of the power to me, uh, whether it's a hostility to bring someone down, uh, or whether it was a sincere... Uh, affection, you know, it's hard to say. Obviously, the judgment was poor, but without knowing more about her background and history, it's hard to say how, in a sense, pathological it was as opposed to just plain poor judgment. Well, uh, how about taking somebody else, because you have been practicing psychiatry for 25 years. Have you ever had, you know, you have a, a woman who's narcissistic or grandiose sure. uh, and been in those and, and you've counseled or you've you know, been done therapy with someone 
similar to, we won't talk about Jill Kelly, but... Right, the, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, basically two sides. There's the, the person who's more narcissistic and is just looking to uh, be in a position of power and that may be at times hostile or may just be looking to build up their own self-esteem. The other dynamic, which I like to call shared omnipotence, is people who have tend to have low self-esteem or a sense of doubt but who feel that by connecting with someone powerful, between the two of us, everything will be better. And then the two of us will be in this perfect world. And like, to I, say, like I like to say, we'll live out the biggest lie that children are ever told, which is, and so they lived happily ever after. <laughs> the reality is no one lives happily ever after, but secretly we all hold on to that. And at times that we can get carried away with, well, you know, maybe if I connect with this very powerful person, they have what it takes so that we'll live happily ever after. Obviously, usually it goes in the opposite direction, but that's a very powerful fantasy that it's hard for any of us to escape, especially under the right conditions. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, uh, I, I was just thinking about Monica Lewinsky, uh, you know, this young girl attaching herself to the President of the United States and, and kind of in that context, uh, sure. it makes a lot, yeah, it makes a sure. lot of sense. And of course, what, what, what's sort of age appropriate for some, for an adolescent and in our society, adolescence goes from like 13 to 35. <laughs> or uh, 45. <laughs> 45, you know, has a, a whole different flavor for someone who's older, uh, but it's surely in a sense, appropriate for adolescents to act that way because that's how they learn about life, whereas it's really not appropriate for someone older to act that way. We've discussed the two generals. Now we have one person left, you know, and this was a lesser character. I don't know if it is a lesser character. I take that back. The FBI agent who is, uh, like, showing his chest to uh, Joe Kelly, where does he come in? What's his personality? Just, you know, just... uh, Uh Gosh, you know, other than to say I wonder if he's friends with Anthony Weiner, it's yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard to They're say best what. Buddies. They go out drinking every night. <laughs> right. I mean, why someone who is in a position with that would take such a risk, which they should know it's a risk, and especially if you're involved in investigations, you know, you know that emails or texts are not very confidential. I mean, it's a lapse of judgment that's really in a way shocking, And again, you know, I mean, without talking about this individual, is that due to something going on in their life? Is it a pattern? Could it even be a reaction to a medication or a drug? You know, we we really have no data on that other than it's a shocking lack of judgment, particularly for someone who, you know, knows the landscape of investigations. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think one of the things, not just with him, but even when you were talking about, you know, General Petraeus, you don't really know. There are so many things that we don't know. Uh, maybe, he, and I'm, I'm just saying this. This is, uh, you know, making this up. But I mean, sure. he could be having a terrible marriage. Uh, right. You know, right. and if it could have been a bad marriage for, tw- you know, everyone makes the assumptions that it's, it's a great marriage. Or I'm thinking, of, take John Edwards, maybe. You know? Right. Uh, right. The assumption was that uh, Elizabeth Edwards really got screwed, but and uh, maybe she didn't. Maybe you know you don't know. So. Right. I mean, you can take a look at the behavior and say, yeah, this was bad, but we don't know the context to put it in. Yeah. Which doesn't necessarily excuse it, but may explain some of it. I just think the last thing is we only have a couple more minutes, but you touched on this. I mean, if you think about all these people in these circumstances, if they know anything, they know 
that the internet is not safe, emails are not safe, that you, I mean, that, that whatever their reasons for doing all of this, how could they possibly be sending 10 or 20,000 emails that are going to be incriminating? It is amazing if, you know. Yeah. On, on, of course, the other side of that is how much there's really a self-destructive aspect to these behaviors, which we don't know the individuals, but it's not that unusual, especially if it is a regression, uh, for the person to really have a sense of guilt or have a sense uh, of really feeling ashamed of what they're doing and secretly want to get caught. Now, whether that applies or not, we don't know, uh, but that's not unusual to be a factor especially, you know, for someone who may not have a constant pattern of, let's say, antisocial type behavior, uh, where they really may be very conflicted about it and in some way relieved when they get caught. Well, it has been I have a pleasure talking to you today. I found it really interesting, and I do want to direct people because um, to, your, to your website, DMR Dynamics, uh, to learn, obviously, more about you, you give a, you do a lot of lecturing, I think, around the country. Right. Uh, Actually, just this weekend, I was talking about a whole different issue of violence and sports and how that affects society. So. Well, we'll have to have you on again for that topic. Because <laughs> that's, that's an now interesting we have to say goodbye, too. but this was really in DMR Dynamics, and we've been talking to psychiatrist uh, David Reese. Um, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and as I said before, we archive the show at the end of the day. Um, I hope you had a good morning, uh, have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.